Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Welcome. We are talking about Mulan today. Yay! Yay, <laughs> I think. Yay, I think. Yeah. Uh, yay! <laughs> I mean, you know the podcast, guys. You know what we're going to get into, but... <laughs> It's a fun movie. <laughs> it is a fun movie. There's a lot of fun things about it, for sure. Before we dive in, I just want to make sure that all of our listeners know that part of why we didn't have an episode for you last month is because we went to Disneyland. <laughs> and that was way more important. <laughs> I mean, it kind of was. I in mean, part yeah. because I was giving a very real, very professional presentation at a social work conference but you came with me we went to disneyland and of course california adventure and if you would like to see any of our photos which include many hot takes (laughs) (laughs) you can find those in a highlights reel on our instagram at decon disney yeah aaron will you give us a synopsis of 1998's mulan please yes ma'am So the film begins with the Huns, led by a man named Sean Yu, climbing the Great Wall, and the guards lighting the signal begins to alert all of China of their invasion. A scene I found very frightening as a child. Oh, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Lots of grappling hooks. The grappling hooks coming up from, like, the darkness. Terrifying. Very effective. When the emperor hears of this, he orders one man from every family to join the Imperial Chinese army as they prepare for battle. Mm -hmm. We then transition to Mulan, who is jotting some notes on her arm for her meeting with the matchmaker later that day to prove that she will make a good future wife and, quote, uphold the family honor. (laughs) She soon realizes she's running late and scrambles to complete her chores and prepare, often featuring humorous mishaps. When Mulan finally meets with the matchmaker, a few more mishaps ultimately lead to the matchmaker's butt catching on fire and Mulan splashing tea all over her, after (laughs) which the matchmaker chases her out and declares that Mulan will never bring her family honor. Mulan returns home ashamed and sings the song Reflection, then has a sweet moment with her father where he tries to reassure her that she will one day blossom. Shortly after, several soldiers and the emperor's council, Chifu, arrive in the town to hand out the conscription notices. When her family's name is called, Mulan tries to argue that her elderly veteran father, who walks with a cane, shouldn't have to fight, but instead she is told to stay in her place and hold her tongue. Mm -hmm. Mulan's father is determined to do his duty, so Mulan decides to join the army in her father's place. She cuts her hair, steals the conscription notice, takes his armor, his sword and heads off to the army camp. And I just want to highlight that we are going to talk about all of the problematic westernized aspects of this, but a major one is the cutting of the hair. So Mm. the fact that you noted that, I just want to like put a giant red flag there and say that is inaccurate. (laughs) How many times is she going to have to do that during the synopsis? <laughs> Sorry. I won't interrupt. I'll, tr- I'll try not to interrupt No, you. you should. It's just like, y'all be ready. Be ready. It's, the westernization is ridiculous. Is. Yeah. So please continue. When Mulan's family realizes that she's gone, they decide they can't bring her home because if they expose her, she will be killed. Mm-hmm. Raise that flag. Flag. Red Again. flag. <laughs> Love it. 
So Mulan's grandmother prays to their ancestors to keep her safe, and we meet first ancestor Fa and Mushu, a disgraced former family guardian whose job is to awaken the other ancestors. The ancestors decide to send the great stone dragon to protect Mulan, but Mushu accidentally shatters that guy. So he <laughs> pretends to be the great stone dragon and takes its place as Mulan's guardian. Mm-hmm. He has the plan to make Mulan into a war hero and thereby win back his place as an official guardian. Which also red flag about that uh, <laughs> YouTube video I watched said that guardians aren't really a thing. Great. <laughs> Praying to the ancestors. Absolutely. A big, big thing. Guardians? Question mark? Not a thing. Mm. Okay. okay. But how else were they going to get Eddie Murphy into this movie? They needed another animal companion. There were not (laughs) enough already. (laughs) So Mushu catches up with Mulan and gives her poor guidance on how to act like a man, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. uh, as she enters the military camp and takes the name Ping. Simultaneously, we meet Captain Li Shang, the recently promoted son of General Li and Mulan's new commanding officer. Shang needs to whip the ragtag group of soldiers into shape to face the Huns and to prove himself to his father. And this is all under the watchful and very skeptical eye of Chifu. We then get the fabulous training montage set to Be a Man, where we get to know the soldiers and also Mulan's future friends, Yao, Ling, and Qianpo. Yep. And we see the soldiers master their training and Mulan proves herself to Shang. Mm-hmm. Chifu does not feel that the soldiers are ready for battle, however. Mushu overhears him, threatening to dissuade the emperor from letting them fight. And if Mulan doesn't fight, she can't become a war hero. So Mushu and Kriki, the lucky cricket that Mulan's grandmother gave to her back in the beginning. There are so many animal sidekicks. (laughs) They forge a letter from the general saying that Shang's troops are needed at the front. The army moves out immediately. They sing a girl worth fighting for as they march before they stumble upon a destroyed village and the remains of the massacred Imperial army. Very chilling. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I want to talk about that more. But that transition Mm. from girl worth fighting for to the village. Yep. So intense. Mm -hmm. The troop then catches up to the Huns in the mountain pass and the troops are ambushed. Thousands of Huns ride down the mountainside to attack them, but Mulan grabs the last cannon and launches it at a snow-covered mountain peak, causing an avalanche that buries the Hun army and nearly sweeps all of the troops off a cliff. But she is able to save herself and Shang, while all the rest of the guys manage to hide under a very conveniently placed rock. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But Mulan is injured in the battle, and her secret is revealed when the wound is bandaged got more problems there yeah chifu tells shang to follow the law aka execute mulan but shang spares her because she saved his life the army then marches on without her leaving her in the snowy mountains they just leave her they just leave her which i guess isn't a death sentence because she gets it together and gets out of there but still After the army has left, Mulan sees several Huns, including Shan Yu, emerge from the snowdrift and head towards the Imperial City, where a parade is being held to honor the victorious soldiers. She rides to the city to warn everyone, but no one will listen to her, including Shang. When the Huns capture the emperor, Mulan convinces Yao, Ling, and Qianpo to use scarves to climb up the columns into the palace. The men dress as concubines Mm -hmm. to complete the look. 
because that's necessary. Mm -hmm. And at the last moment, Shang decides to use his scarf to join them, though he does not dress as a concubine. The five of them make it into the palace and manage to get the emperor to safety. But Mulan ends up stuck in the palace fighting Shan Yu because he recognizes her as the soldier who destroyed his army in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Mulan traps Shan Yu on the roof and Mushu catapults him into an explosion of fireworks, killing him off screen in a way that we can't tell what happened for real. (laughs) Very Disney. Very Disney. Mulan safely escapes and the emperor thanks her for saving all of China and offers her a position on his council, which she declines in order to return to her family. Mulan returns home with trophies from her victories as gifts from the emperor for the Fa family, but her father tells her that the greatest gift of all is having her for a daughter. Shang then shows up, and Mulan invites him to dinner, and the first ancestor begrudgingly makes Mushu a guardian again. Cue Ancestor Dance Party to True to Your Heart by Stevie Wonder in 98 Degrees. <laughs> wow. Excellent synopsis. Very tight, very concise, which I do think reflects the excellent pacing of this film. Yeah, it moves fast. And like there are slower, quote unquote, scenes where like emotional things are happening, but like they are over in like 10 seconds, Mm -hmm. it feels like. It moves so quick. It's a fun watch. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I watched it twice because I think that pacing and me taking notes the first time made me feel like I'd missed stuff. Tell me about your relationship with Mulan, the 1998 animated feature. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I was having trouble like remembering how I felt about this film. Mm -hmm. I know like I've seen it a bunch of times. It clearly wasn't a top, top favorite if I don't have those like super strong associations, but I know I liked it. Uh Uh-huh. I had a Mulan and Khan toy set from Mattel when I was little. Okay. But I think like my strongest memory of like stuff associated with this film is that Uh, I remember on the bus to school singing Be a Man and Reflection with like the other girls in the back of the bus. Whoa, (laughs) cool kids. So I was super aware of the music, knew all the lyrics, all of that stuff. So I wonder what prevented it from becoming a favorite for me because I think it falls like exactly in line with what you would think Aaron's interests would be. Absolutely. Like I'm trying to unpack if there's any like cultural stuff where I was like this isn't meant for me or if it just it was just there and I just didn't have a strong opinion yeah I don't know yeah that that is interesting I agree I would have thought this was an Aaron favorite because it is action-packed it has a tomboy girl in the lead who Mm -hmm. I would expect you to identify strongly with watching it now I really enjoyed it and I was like little Aaron like what What's up? (laughs) Like, why didn't we love this one? I wonder. Well, you mentioned that the opening sequence was scary. So maybe it was too scary or too emotionally intense. And I might also say not a lot of fuzzy animals. Wow. Not only do the animals need to be there, they also need to be soft. (laughs) (laughs) The only... Dog is little brother who is cute, but like, eh. Yeah, Khan, I love horses, yeah. but Khan doesn't get to do as much as Cricky or Mushu do. So yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I just needed more animals. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Oh, man. All right. What did you think when you were younger? We are now getting to the period where I am starting to age out a little bit. Already? I think so. I was 10 when Mulan (sighs) came out. Yeah, I was only five. I know. So (laughs) I think I just wasn't as into it. I mean, we definitely went and saw it in theaters as we would for the subsequent movies. But I think once I got to middle school, I think I started to lose a little bit of interest in Disney. And we're coming up on a lot of movies that I have never even seen before. Oh, exciting. That'll be so fun. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that might be part of it. And I think I also really love princess movies. And so Mulan was like too tomboy for me. Mm, yeah interesting okay I guess that tracks yeah and I definitely love some of the music I will say (laughs) I had entirely forgotten about the song a girl worth fighting for really Yes, which like I'm glad because eh. yeah problematic for sure but I know that one very well (laughs) (laughs) but honor to us all and I'll make a man out of you favorites love those know all the lyrics but enjoyed the music in a way that was disconnected from the film for the most part i think the music is surprisingly resonant Mm. we'll talk about it more later but like didn't seem to stand out to people as much as past ones had Mm. but like i knew every song and every word we sang it on the bus they're not quite as amazing as like the hunchback songs but something about them is really catchy and mm-hmm. sticks with you at least like I'll make a man out of you is is a Disney standard. Yes, <laughs> this <point>. iconic. <laughs> Absolutely. So you enjoyed watching it now? Yes, yeah. I did. I enjoyed the plot. I again I know the lines really well, so like Mushu's jokes all feel very nostalgic to mm. me in a way that still makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is a character I'm very curious to unpack with you because I have a really hard time imagining the movie without Eddie Murphy. Sure. But yeah, like I I think it's fun and action-packed and the songs are good and it's hilarious at a lot of points <laughs> and that all really speaks to me and I have to do some reframing as I'm like, okay, but look at all the problematic pieces. How do those fit into mm. our feelings about this film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what about you? How'd it go down this time? I had such mixed feelings about it because there Mm. were parts of it that I enjoyed so much for a lot of the reasons you're saying, the action, including the fight choreography. I I don't know Mm. if you call it that in an animated film, but the martial arts is so well done, so well animated. The action is so exciting. A lot of the humor, I think, still lands really well. Eddie Murphy does a lot of heavy lifting of all. He is most of the comic relief, like him and uh, Mulan's three friends in the army. But yeah, I think a lot of his jokes are really funny. And even a lot of the physical comedy, I think, lands. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy the music, but I really struggled with the gender stuff that we yeah. will discuss in depth and I <laughs> at length at <laughs> length and we've talked about this I think we both 
watch the movie like first fresh, then do research and then rewatch it. Is that right? Are you? Uh, It kind of depends for me. I have found that starting some of my historical and like process research before watching is really helpful because it helps me notice things. And we had a particularly long break for this Mm -hmm. movie. So I did end up watching it twice. But usually I do only watch it once, especially if I know it particularly well. Sure. Okay. So I usually watch it before I've done any research just to like see how it lands. And I found myself during that first watch feeling like I was on eggshells a little bit because there were a lot of things where I just was like, I can't tell if this is offensive. I just, Mm. I, Rachel, as a white person, don't know enough about Chinese history, Chinese culture to know if this is accurate or offensive in its representation. And so I actually found that once I did some research and I had a better sense of the things that were inaccurate and the things that weren't, I was able to enjoy it more because there are a lot of things that they got right. Mm. And there's a lot of things they got wrong too. But I think I was able to enjoy it for the positives more once I had a clearer idea of that. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like if it's not something you have experience with or the knowledge to like critique Mm -hmm. and also you know that like our whole thing is we're going to critique it and you're like I don't know how yet (laughs) yeah it that context is very helpful to rewatching it and being like okay now I have a frame of reference to know where I can begin with this exactly yeah yeah it's that discomfort of like uh am I allowed to laugh at this or what (laughs) so yeah. yeah yeah Yeah. And sometimes yes and sometimes no. (laughs) Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about where the story of Mulan comes from. Because yes, please. Mulan is a legend from Chinese folklore. So this is not a character or concept that's original to Disney by any means. Mm -hmm. The character of Mulan comes from a poem or song called The Ballad of Mulan, which was written, we don't know exactly when, but sometime during the 5th century in the Northern Wei Dynasty, which is part of modern day what we call China. That poem was originally transmitted through oral tradition for about 100 years, and the first written record of The Ballad of Mulan is from a text called Musical Records Old and New by Chen Ji Jiang. And that was written in approximately 568 AD. So we're talking about a text that is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And this poem and the character of Mulan has remained a really prominent hero within Chinese culture. The poem is very different than the plot of the movie. The poem does describe Mulan and the central idea of Mulan being a woman and taking her father's place at war is the same. But the poem really focuses on Mulan before she goes to war, making that decision, and then it cuts to her coming back home after the war has been fought. No part of the poem focuses on her actual time as a soldier. We learn through the poem that 
She was a really skilled warrior who earned accolades for her performance on the battlefield, but we don't actually go with her during the poem. Mulan, crucially, is only revealed to be a woman after she's returned home from battle. So that's a crucial difference from the plot of the Disney film. The poem is also different in terms of the values that it emphasizes, which we'll talk about (laughs) a lot more. But the original poem is so revered because Mulan is seen as someone who is upholding the values of filial piety and loyalty, which are really foundational values within Chinese culture, especially pre-Confucian and Confucian times. So filial piety is a guiding principle that dictates how parents and children should relate to one another. So filial piety demands that parents are caring and loving towards their children. And in exchange, children have a duty to respect their parents. So by going to war in her father's place, Mulan is fulfilling her duty and respecting her father by doing this. So she's not doing it because she doesn't fit in. In fact, when she comes home in the ballad, she moves right back into her role as a woman. She becomes a wife at the end of the poem. So it's a very different emphasis on the motivation of the character of Mulan and thus emphasizes a really different set of values than the Disney film does. Absolutely. It's a pretty short poem, so you can find it and read it. And yeah, there are lots of different versions with like slightly different details. So be aware of that. And then also like the Ballad of Mulan is that original collected version, but like it was changed multiple times by different writers, Mm. not hugely like just slight changes. Mm -hmm. but different aspects were added over time in China, even before it was translated to English or anything like that. So there are, it's a, it's has a big oral history. Like there are a lot of different versions. Doesn't, it isn't easily defined as one thing. Yes. Yes. And a great source, if you want to learn more about the history of Mulan as a character and as a legend is a 2010 book by Dong called Mulan's Legend and Legacy in China and the United States by Temple University Press. I assume that's in our bibliography. Oh, absolutely. All right. You want to hear about how the film was made? Yes, I do. I bet this is juicy. (laughs) So by this point, Walt Disney feature animation in Florida had been making cartoon shorts and featurettes and contributed five to 20 minutes of animation to like most of the Renaissance movies, but they hadn't made a feature film themselves. But they wanted to prove their mettle and do that. And in 1993, executives gave them the go-ahead to start working on a feature film, finally. Mm-hmm. Disney had been interested in making a film about Asian legends around that time as they tried on all sorts of cultures, you know, <laughs> uh, outside of the the white Western world in the 90s. To prep for our episode, I read The Art of Mulan by Jeff Curdy, mm-hmm. which is a very 
Disney sympathetic <laughs> exploration of the creation of Mulan, particularly focusing on the art, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to cite it a lot. So right. just letting everybody know, again, in our bibliography, I got it from my local library. You can, too, if you want to. <laughs> so there's a good quote from Thomas Schumacher in The Art of Mulan about this process of finding the story. Mm. Quote, we had been looking at a lot of stories set in the Far East, whether they were Japanese or Chinese or Korean. We felt that it was a rich and evocative environment and story source, one that we had never really tapped before at Disney. And although we looked and looked for an Asian story, I was uninterested by anything that we found. Uh, Every uh, sorry. <laughs> uh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he he spins it around in a second. Here we go. Everything seemed to be kind of colonial. Quote: okay. External forces come into an exotic country. Okay. Nothing seemed to do justice to the resonance of the culture or the majesty of the setting. We wanted something that was more faithful to the culture and focused on the native society. I retract my groans of despair. Don't take it all the way, though, because also like you went to look at Asian stories and only got colonial ones. So you were only looking at like Western versions of Asian stories or Western stories about Asia. So they still didn't maybe do a great job Mm -hmm. in their research. Mm -hmm. Also, something about the adjective evocative feels a little eh to me, like that exoticization that we saw with Aladdin of going to this mystical East where things are so different. That's so evocative. Yeah. That doesn't sit super well with me. Wow, you're going to feel that a lot. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So they're looking for this story, and Disney had previously optioned several children's books about legends, myths, and folklore by Robert D. Sansusi. So they asked him if he had something connected to Asia, and he shared an unpublished manuscript about Fa Mulan, titled Fa Mulan. Hmm. Disney clearly used that story's interpretations of the Ballad of Mulan as like the greatest inspiration for the story arc. Robert D. Sansusi. Is that a white person? An Asian person? Yep. A white person. American white man. In the credits, we get a based on the story by Robert D. Sansusi. I saw that story credit and I was wondering about that. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, that's this guy. I have... Much to say about <laughs> Sansusi's version in general, but suffice to say that like he's the one who adds the romance aspect into it more. Gotta have the romance. He brings in those gender stereotypes in a way that aren't really present in the original version. Okay. So Disney had also been developing a straight-to-video film at that time called China Doll, which featured a British man sweeping a miserable Chinese girl away to a happily ever after in the West. I'm sorry. And they were concerned about the colonial nature of all the stories that they were encountering. Meanwhile, they're making China doll. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So they were like, these are all problematic, but we don't have any other options. So we're just going to do it anyway. Yeah. And we'll just make that (laughs) one straight to video. No one will see it. It's like, no one will notice. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes. So they scrapped that, which is good. Oh, great. Okay, good. Good. (laughs) But they just combined it with Sansusi's Fa Mulan. I mean, really, it's Sansusi's Fa Mulan with like some China doll sprinkled on top. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. China doll sprinkles. Great. Yum. <laughs> Thomas Schumacher approached Barry Cook, who had directed the Roger Rabbit cartoon trail mix up at the Florida studio oh. to direct their first feature. Okay. And he gave Cook the choice of a Scottish film with a dragon or this Mulan idea they had working. Cook suggested that they add a dragon to the Mulan story and then picked the Mulan story. Do we want to talk about how that aspect is problematic in that the imagery of the dragon would have been reserved for the imperial family in ancient China? And so having all of this dragon imagery in all of these other places would have actually been very offensive. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's wow. fun. There are a lot of dragons in the Fa home. <laughs> yes, there are. And you know what we white Americans think of when we think of China? Dragons. More <laughs> dragons. Dragons everywhere. <laughs> and let's make them breathe fire, which is like a Western dragon thing right. and not really an Eastern dragon thing because they're more like water and air traditionally. Yep. Cool. <laughs> In 1995, Rob Minkoff recommended Tony Bancroft, animator of The Gargoyles in Hunchback, oh. to be Cook's co-director, and Schumacher approved. Okay. But back before Bancroft joined the team in the summer of 1994, they took their China trip, which is great. I'm glad they went. Yes. They love their trips. Yes. And... There are some similarities between Mulan and Aladdin in terms of this being a Western, predominantly white corporate entity depicting a story <laughs> from a country in the, quote, East. And they didn't get to go to Iraq or Baghdad because mm -hmm. of the Iraq War. I think that was reflected in all of the inaccuracies of the depiction of the Middle East in Aladdin. And so I think the fact that they got to go to China clearly made a big difference in terms yeah. of the amount of accuracy. Yeah, for sure. I have equally as little knowledge, I think, about like ancient Chinese culture as I do about a lot of Middle Eastern culture. Right, same. <laughs> and like things were really obviously super racist in Aladdin mm -hmm. in a way that even I pick up on right. before doing my research. <laughs> and Mulan was like slightly better. <laughs> yes, right. So the people on this trip were director Barry Cook, producer Pam Coates, art director Rick Sluter, layout supervisor Robert Walker, and supervising animator for Mulan and her father, Mark Hen. Mm -hmm. So they went, all went on the trip to China. They had done very little development of the story before they went and were looking for thematic, visual, atmospheric inspiration, just kind of in general. And much like the Lion King trip several years before, this trip greatly influenced the appearance mm -hmm. of the film. Mm -hmm. In Tam, there's a... <laughs> I should probably tell you what Tam is. So Tam is the art of Mulan because that's how I've been writing it in my notes gotcha. <laughs> for weeks okay, okay, and okay. referring to it as Tam. Yep. In Tam, <laughs> Rick Suter explains, quote, when we were sitting in meetings back in America, we could always relate back to what it looked like in China. You remember that temple, the fog in the early morning and the ambiance and the feeling we had? A lot of the atmosphere of the film came from the actual experience of being there. 
Tam also says that the trip had, quote, established their desire to communicate a combination of the visual sweep and sophistication with an inherent sense prominent in Asian art of overall spareness and simplicity. Hmm. The art style of the film was highly inspired by Chinese paintings, and Hans Botcher made a lot of concept art using watercolors and simple designs to achieve that spare design. And he also got the designers to embrace kiss or keep it simple stupid okay. <laughs> as the motto for the art. So removing extraneous details and don't need to be the most realistic thing ever. Mm-hmm. One of his inspirations was the work that Tyrus Wong did on Bambi, mm. which I definitely see those similarities, particularly in like the composition of backgrounds and how it highlights characters and spareness of the images. Mm. Mm-hmm. If you want to hear more about Tyrus Wong, go listen to our Bambi episode. Yay. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the art team also thought a lot about color. The backgrounds were carefully crafted in both composition and color to highlight the characters and to capture emotions. So bright red backgrounds at the end of I'll Make a Man Out of You as the soldiers find their strength and power, or like the expansive white snow with very little other details to show how small the Imperial Army is or how cold and alone Mulan ends up being. They also differentiate the characters by color. So Yao is red. He's fiery and angry. Mm. Chen Po is calm and blue. And Ling is yellow and very silly. Mm-hmm. But those color choices were not always so obvious to the filmmakers. Mm. There's an interesting quote that I would love to talk to you about from Rick Sluter in Tam. Quote, when we first started the film, we wanted to do all Chinese colors. We felt we've got to be true to the Chinese culture. But in China, red means life, where here it means evil. White means pure, where there it means death. Colors have different meanings in China, so we couldn't be quite so literal with our choices because the Western audience wouldn't understand it. And it may look a little strange to us to have a villain dressed in white. So we let the emotions of the story dictate the color. (laughs) Thoughts? It is so convenient that emotions align with the Western view of colors, yes. isn't it? Isn't that nice? That's so <laughs> helpful for them. Yeah. And also, an audience has never been able to like read other cues besides color to tell that like a villain's a bad guy, you know? We've never used white as a villain color. Like, I mean, it becomes more and more popular to, like, subvert these things more recently, I think. Mm -hmm. But, like, give the audience some credit. They can figure it out. Well, that's also really interesting to think about because we have mentioned before how the use of shadow and the colors black and gray are used to indicate villainy but then there's Mm -hmm. also those are also the colors that are associated with people of color and Mm -hmm. so there's this conflation of people of color and evil which is a western thing it sounds like yeah so it's not like they can't possibly make another choice also that quote just highlights the fact that disney is prioritizing their white Western audience, 
which yeah. makes sense. They're a Western company. That's their primary demographic. However, that means that they're taking a story that belongs to a different culture and packaging it up for a white audience. Yep. Which is inherently problematic and exploitative. Yeah. Welcome to Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole the whole shebang right there for yeah. sure. Wow. They also had to establish kind of a time period because there isn't general consensus on the actual historical time period of when Mulan might have lived. The team decided they were okay with fudging it, basically. Sure. So Rick Sluter and production designer Hans Botcher based the visual design on the Ming and Qing dynasties. And then character designer Chen Yi Chang explained in The Art of Mulan that most Chinese artwork that Americans would have been familiar with at the time is from the Ming and Qing dynasties. But he was highly influenced by the Han and Tang dynasties okay. for his character artwork. Hmm. So he pulled on what he called primitive parts of Han artwork and flowery parts of the Tang artwork. Hmm. And the Tang dynasty became the main resource for like the art style of Mulan. Mm -hmm. So like there's a lot of different dynasties that I honestly don't fully know much about. Right. That are all mixed together here. I'm glad that they're drawing inspiration from authentic aspects of Chinese culture and history. But I do think that pulling from all of these different styles might contribute to this sense of a hodgepodge of Chinese culture. And also, I don't know that there is that much discrepancy around when the story of Mulan would have originated. Scholars seem to have limited it to a range of a couple hundred years. So I think folks have pretty firmly decided that she precedes at least the Tang dynasty and maybe existed during the Han dynasty, but probably came after. Mm -hmm. Most of the sources that I reviewed, including that Dong book that I mentioned earlier, situate Mulan within the Northern Wei dynasty. Mm hmm which also means that she would have been fighting not against the Huns who came much later. And there's actually debate as to whether the Huns as an entity, when we think of Attila the Hun, were ever that far east. But anyway. Yes. Yeah. I think that is extremely good context. Yeah. Disney beyond maybe not super caring or paying attention sometimes. I think they also did do their research and then decided that all these things interested them, particularly from an artistic standpoint. And we're like, well, this is a fantasy anyway. We're going to play with the parts that we like and that help our story. I have another quote from Tam about this kind of hodgepodge than like the Disney framing of it, okay. where they say, Quote, by combining the styles of different historic periods, the Mulan designers were able to create a visual reality for the story that combined fantasy with authenticity, a world real enough to be tangible, but with understated anachronism. So understand that it would be apparent only to a scholar, it is so understated, to help to define it as a unique world belonging only to Mulan. Well, 
I hate to break it to these Disney filmmakers, but it seems like those inaccuracies and anachronisms were pretty evident to all of their Chinese viewers. Yes, this is all definitely like insert Americans here. Right, American <laughs> like, scholars. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that, oh, great. So they're basically <laughs> saying we can just get away with making mistakes because people are not going to know any better. But that is a classic example of Disney abdicating the responsibility it has for telling these stories and becoming a definitive version of a story or a foundational representation of a culture within Western, specifically United States society. Yeah. They're not taking any responsibility for that. Yeah, that's so true. They're just saying like, okay, we're going to totally misrepresent Chinese culture, (laughs) but it's a fantasy. And... Our Western viewers won't care, and we don't care if people in the West then have a completely inaccurate understanding of what ancient China was like. That's completely true. Like, this is the story that probably most Americans first refer to as the story of Mulan. Mm -hmm. And that's been true with most of the the things we've covered from Disney. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. All right. More? More. More. So we have the tone, we have the look of the film, now we need the story. Mm -hmm. Much like their approach to the historical period, the team decided it was okay to interpret the character of Mulan their own way. (laughs) Their own way, meaning their white Western way. Continue. Yeah! Another quote from Tam. Ultimately, whether Mulan was a genuine historical figure or simply a legendary hero didn't really matter to the team at Disney that inherited her story. Right. Although a determined respect for the original tale had to be part of the Disney adaptation of Mulan, director Tony Bancroft notes that the creative group recognized certain limitations. We knew we had to respect the material. This is a beloved tale to the Chinese people. We also knew we weren't going to make a Chinese picture. We couldn't. We're not Chinese. We have a different (laughs) sensibility, a different storytelling style. Hmm. The arrogance of a white person (laughs) saying, you know what? I can't tell a Chinese story because I'm not Chinese. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Not once did they think, wow, I wonder what it would be like to bring on Chinese filmmakers to tell this story, since Mm. they could do it justice. Similar to that, Barry Cook was really happy that like Mulan was a legendary figure, so they didn't feel like they had to be as set in stone about her life and story. Mm -hmm. He felt that they could enhance it. They could let their imaginations kick in and they felt liberated by that. Good. I'm so happy that a woman from Chinese legend could liberate these white men. So much girl power. So much feminism. Girl power. Yep. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're changing and enhancing Mulan. That's right. So in... Their early versions of the story, 
Mulan was a misfit tomboy who loves her father but hates the restrictions placed on her by her family and society. Most notably, she is part of an arranged marriage that is to Shang in some versions, and her destiny has literally been carved in stone by her father. Mm-hmm. So she runs away to forge her own destiny, and the story was pitched as a romantic comedy yep. with this arranged marriage angle. <sighs> Head of story Chris Sanders did not like the romantic aspect of the story. Okay. He didn't think it was faithful enough to the original poem where Mulan leaves because of her love for her father. Mm-hmm. He was adamant that they needed to focus on that story of love and selflessness. Okay. Which is more in line with the Chinese values and the original ballad of Milan. Yeah, so this could have been even more off base, okay, guys. Okay, great. Good. <laughs> that was a good course correction. There's a quote from Dean Dublois, Dublois mm-hmm. in Tam, who is the story co-head, that makes me shake my head. Quote, Mulan rode off into the night, but to escape, to make her own life. Yeah. Well, that wasn't very endearing. She was going to go off to prove to the world that no one was going to write her destiny, that she was going to do it herself. It was just so militant, and it really isolated her and turned her into something non-empathic, sick, uh, and very self-righteous. That was something we didn't like at all. (laughs) So, for all of the criticism of this film for being too feminist and individualist there also was this point where like it was too western even for the filmmakers and they couldn't do another woman who wanted to make her own destiny again the use of the word militant is so telling because that yeah is an insult that is thrown at feminists all the time it's like you are yes. allowed to advocate for your rights but you really can't do it in such a militant way you need to advocate for your rights nicely and quietly and then we might listen but we probably won't thank you so much for coming right like how dare you call a woman who is literally going off to join the military militant (laughs) (sighs) she's too militant for the military. I know, I know. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> character design. I mentioned character designer Chen Yi Chang earlier. Mm-hmm. He did most of the final designs of characters. Animator Aaron Blaze said that Chang unified the picture, taking each animator's design for their character and matching it with the rest of the characters and the art direction. And eventually all the animators started modeling their drawings off of his and how he had brought them all together. Cool. Chang focused on emphasizing the S-curve quality of Chinese art and approaching each costume like it was made of silk so that there'd be a flowing quality Mm. to them. At the same time, Chang says in Tam that these qualities also sometimes made the characters feel flat and sacrificed a sense of volume, which is definitely something I notice Mm -hmm. about the drawings in this film. Mm -hmm. Like, it is intentionally flat because that felt more similar to the Chinese paintings that they were working based on. Okay. Then there's this fabulous quote from Chang in Tam. Quote, after we finalized the main characters, I told the directors that I would like to do the secondary characters because I'm concerned that the artists here, because of their educational environment, 
don't really have a good set of graphic icons to portray the individuality of Asians, and this would be my opportunity to do so. Wow, yes. Even though they are secondary characters or background people whom the audience probably wouldn't single out, I still tried to make them look like individuals, people you would see if you went to Asia. Awesome. And did they let this artist do that? Yes. Huge role. Like, the characters are so much his... Obviously, they like other elements and soften things Mm -hmm. and like his original sketches become a little bit more simplified to be better animated, but also a little bit more Mm Disney-fied. But yes, his influence is extremely clear in all of the character Mm -hmm. design. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's why we get a decent diversity of faces and some body types and like particularly the other women in like the background in the village Mm. you have a lot of diversity that was him yeah great yay (laughs) (laughs) like a positive (laughs) excellent as i mentioned earlier there was also an abundance of funny animal companions in mulan little brother khan the horse creaky the cricket and mushu Cricky's kind of interesting because most of the team thought he was unnecessary and they kept trying to cut him. Mm. But veteran story artist Joe Grant, who has literally been working at Disney for 60 years. He's been here since the beginning. Oh my gosh. Loved Creaky. He would sketch Creaky and slip the little sketch under the director's doors to like make sure they didn't forget about him. And luckily, Michael Eisner also loved Creaky, so he got to stay in the film. Oh, good. All right. Casting. Leia Salonga. Amazing. Was the singing voice of Jasmine and was originally cast as both Mulan's speaking voice and singing voice. That's great. She is Filipina, not Chinese. Yeah. I mean, half the cast is Japanese. <laughs> if you want, if you want to talk about that. I mean, I do. Of course I do. I love Leia Salonga. Amazing performer. She is not Chinese. Nope. You can cast a Chinese singer to be the singing voice. Oh, I just love her. That was all that. Like, I think she's awesome and beautiful. And I love when she sings. <laughs> So she was supposed to be both voices, but her attempt at a deeper voice for Ping wasn't working. Mm. So they hired Ming-Na Wen as Mulan's speaking voice after her performance as June in the Joy Luck Club. Mm. I best know Ming-Na Wen from her role as Fennec Shand in The Mandalorian, who's also badass. Nice. She's great. (laughs) For Mushu, Disney wanted another hilarious Hollywood star to give them, you know, Robin Williams as the genie. Once again, they're always searching for that high mm-hmm. <laughs> one more time. Sure. Here's a great quote from <laughs> Tony Bancroft. Quote, from the beginning, we thought that because Mushu is a mythological character, a magical character that doesn't exist, we could have fun with it. Mm-hmm. We wanted a character that was totally the opposite of Mulan. She represented Chinese values. She was more dramatic. She was close to her father, very respectful. So she had to be cast so that she had that voice, that very Chinese character. So Ming-Na Wen was perfect for that. And we wanted the character of Mushu to be the opposite of Mulan. So we thought, what would be more in contrast with an Asian character than an (laughs) African-American character? (laughs) It just seemed to work well that way. Uh. First, we were looking at Billy Crystal, Danny DeVito, kind of this New York tough guy, streetwise kind of character, but it didn't feel right for Mushu. Mm -hmm. It felt too much like what we had done with Hercules and some other films, even Timon in The Lion King. 
So we wanted to make him unique. So let's try African-American. And we started casting a lot of different African-American personalities and we came across Eddie Murphy. (sighs) Yeah. What is more opposite? You know, right. Really easy to line up races with their opposites. I know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> this just f- feels like a white guy being like, you know what is funny? Black people. <laughs> That's what that sounds like to me. Like, I hear the rationale that he's offering, right? We want a character who can contrast our protagonist as though there isn't a whole range of personality and diversity within Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are no funny Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Jackie Chan, famously never in a comedy. <laughs> so Eddie Murphy accepted the role, but he refused to record at the Disney Studios mm. for reasons I can't find. So they recorded his lines in the basement of his mansion in New Jersey. Yes. <laughs> All right, Eddie. <laughs> Which is why there's, like, no pictures or, like, he's not part of any of the documentaries I watched on the making of Mulan. Like, yeah, he's just not there. And I kind of wish I had seen more of, like, his experience with this film. But, like, it's really hard to find. Interesting. B.D. Wong, who had recently starred in Jurassic Park, was cast as Shang's speaking voice. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And Donnie Osmond of, you know, himself (laughs) and his family was hired as Shang's singing voice. Osmond studied Wong's dialogue tapes in an attempt to match his performance while singing. Good. Good. Good job, Donnie. Yeah. Uh, I also just have to shout out Harvey Firestein's performance as Yao. I think it's fabulous mm-hmm. and hilarious. Obviously, Harvey Firestein is not Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first exposure to Harvey Firestein. Mm-hmm. So him being Yao kind of blew my mind because I didn't actually make that connection to Harvey Firestein until later. And I was like, wow, that's he sounds so iconic there. It's great. All right. On the computer animation side, the Huns charge down the snowy mountainside might remind folks of the wildebeest stampede in The Lion King. Yeah. It uses the same technology to move the figures, but first the team had to create 2,000 Hun soldiers with several different looks so that they wouldn't be obvious duplicates, like mismatching riders with horses and different clothing and weapons and stuff. And then they developed a crowd simulation software called Attila, which (laughs) allowed thousands of characters to move autonomously and in different ways instead of just having one character's actions repeated and staggered which is basically what's happening with the wildebeest. Mm -hmm. The careful way that they varied the characters and paid close attention to their shadows in that charge is particularly evident during the computer animated swooping camera shot over the Huns. So cool. Very good. So cool. So additionally, they created a variant of Attila called Dynasty, which was used to create the crowd of thousands in the Imperial city Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Those characters were hand-drawn, but the software was able to duplicate them and create more or less volume in a certain area without the animators having to move each individual person. And the characters lining the parade route at the end are also CGI, and you can see some duplicates just wearing different colors, Mm. like we saw in Hunchback. Okay. The digital production team also made things like flags, the temple floor, bamboo, rain, snow, the flaming arrows, the munitions cart, Mushu's change from incense burner to living creature, and his snowboard shield. (laughs) 
On the music side, originally Stephen Schwartz was attached as lyricist and songwriter for Mulan. Oh, okay. But in 1994, Jeffrey Katzenberg (gasps) asked him to work on the songs for the Prince of Egypt. And he agreed. Whoa, Katzenberg poached Schwartz? Basically, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's why Prince of Egypt is so good. Yeah, yep. (laughs) But Pocahontas hadn't come out yet, and Schwartz was still working on Hunchback and stuff. Mm -hmm. And Peter Schneider threatened to remove his name from all the publicity materials for those films if he agreed to work with DreamWorks. Wow. And Eisner even called Schwartz, asking him to back out of the DreamWorks project but he refused. Schwartz was willing to work on both films, Mm -hmm. but Disney wouldn't let him. So he was forced to choose and he chose the Prince of Egypt. Wow. He had already written three songs for Mulan, written in stone, Destiny and China Doll. And those were later scrapped as the storyline changed to not really include those things anymore. I mean, that seems for the best In 1995, Disney music executive Chris Montan selected Matthew Wilder to replace Schwartz after hearing his demo for the stage adaptation of Anne Rice's Cry to Heaven. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, never (laughs) heard of it. Wow. David Zippel, who was the lyricist on Hercules, was hired to write the lyrics for Mulan in 1997. They wrote six songs and five made it into the film. The sixth was a song for Mushu that didn't end up working for the story and wasn't necessary, so they scrapped it. Mm -hmm. But it was apparently originally a send-up of Ray Charles and then going to be a send-up of James Brown. Okay, yeah. So that would have been fun to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) English composer Rachel Portman, who had composed the score for The Joy Luck Club, was originally hired for Mulan, but she became pregnant during production and backed out of the project Mm. and was then replaced by Jerry Goldsmith. Goldsmith was an extremely accomplished film composer, but the most common place you will hear his work is the Universal Studios fanfare, which he originally composed. So the... Yeah, that's Jerry Goldsmith. Cool. One last note I want to make about production is that a man named B.H. Barry was the martial arts director for the film, Mm. and he's a white British guy. Cool. Super (laughs) well-suited. All right. So Hunchback and Hercules had both disappointed at the box office. So Disney actually scaled back their marketing campaign for Mulan. Mm. They spent $30 million on promo ads, which is half the $60 million that they'd spent for Hercules. Yeah. And it was a more subdued premiere on June 5th, 1998 at the Hollywood Bowl. They had paper lanterns and fortune cookies, but not all the parades and all the stuff that they had done for the last two. They weren't shutting down the streets of Manhattan with a parade. Nope. (laughs) Good. McDonald's only released the Mulan toys with the Happy Meal two days before the film opened to the general audience. Mm. All of this tempered Wall Street analysts' expectations, which was fine with Disney executives because they hoped that they would for once match expectations or overperform. Mm -hmm. Sure. So on a $90 million budget, Mulan grossed $120 million in North America and $304 million worldwide. Okay. 
Roger Ebert gave Mulan three out of four stars and said that, quote, Mulan is an impressive achievement with a story and treatment ranking with Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. Hmm. Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly gave the film a B plus, writing, quote, vividly animated with a bursting palette that evokes both the wintry grandeur and decorative splendor of ancient China. Mulan is artful and satisfying in a slightly remote way. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but OK. He's American and it's all the way on the other side of the world. Oh. We don't know anything about that. Gotcha. Cool. Gene Siskel was disappointed. Mm. He wrote, quote, as an individual, Mulan comes across as impassive compared with Ariel and the Little Mermaid, a film that gets better as the years pass, or Belle in Beauty and the Beast. The design of the film does not take advantage of the inspiration provided by classic Chinese artists, and the songs are not memorable. Wow. Yes, yeah. Siskel. Heavy hitting with that. If only Mulan were more militant, maybe mm -hmm. Siskel would prefer her as a protagonist. Mulan was nominated for Best Original Musical or Comedy Score at the Oscars and Golden Globes, but did not win. And Reflection was nominated for Best Original Song hmm. at the Golden Globes and also did not win. Any Grammy nomination for that? I mean, Christina Aguilera sings the pop version. She does. She was only 17. Whoa. No, I didn't. I didn't see anything about the Grammys. Hmm. All right. Lastly, the Chinese response okay. to Mulan. Yeah. So Disney was really hopeful that Mulan would do well in China. They <laughs> wanted it to mirror the incredible success of The Lion King in that country, one of the most successful Western films released in China, like ever. Okay. But the Chinese government was still mad at Disney for their film Kundin, which is a biography of the Dalai Lama that was not sympathetic to China. Oh, so they threatened to severely cut ties with Disney's business. Mm. Only 10 Western films were allowed into China each year. So Mulan's chances were kind of slim to begin with. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese did end up waiting until 1999 to give Mulan a limited release, but they specifically scheduled it after the Chinese New Year when many children were off of school so that local films would benefit from the holiday viewings. Mm -hmm. By then, the film had been extensively pirated, which also hurt the box office income. Sure. Generally, the feedback was also poor because Chinese people felt that Mulan was too westernized and foreign looking and that the film was too different from the original myth. So it it bombed. Yep. That's the history. Wow. <laughs> Incredible work. Thanks. Well, Let's move into talking about our themes, the first of which is an extension of what we've already been talking about. We want to discuss further the representations of Chinese culture and people within the film, because as we've said, there are a lot of historical and visual inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier that the story of Mulan originated during the Northern Wei Dynasty, but if this did take place during the Northern Wei Dynasty, Mulan would have been fighting against a nomadic group called the Rorans, who originated in present-day Mongolia. If this was set a little bit later, battles in that same region might have involved the Zhangnu people, and it's possible that the Zhangnu people were a predecessor of the Huns. Mm. It's possible. There's like a whole 
historic linguistics rabbit hole that I went down to try and understand that. But (laughs) regardless, the Huns themselves and Attila the Hun, the most iconic figure associated with the Huns that Westerners would be familiar with, would not have been in this region of the world, it seems like, at any point. It would have been the Zongnu people Mm -hmm. who may or may not be related to the Huns. So the references to the Huns in this film are inaccurate pretty much any way you slice it. So I think that is just an, an example of Disney's laziness and saying like, hmm, what's a name that we can use that is short and people will remember the Huns? Great. Right. Or recognize, like they were like, oh, we're not going to go with this historically accurate group because no one knows who they are. Everyone's heard of Attila the Hun. Let's just chuck those guys in there because then people will feel the weight of the danger. Right. Aside from that historical inaccuracy of the plot, a lot of the visuals seem to be accurate to the historical period in terms of the setting Things like the depiction of vehicles in the town scene. There's a little bit of liberty taken with the types of weapons that may have been used in war. Mm. The cannons are definitely a more modern technology that they shouldn't have had. Right. And play a big part in the movie. So, like, they had to actively think about that and including them. Right, right. There's also, like, the magnolia tree Mm -hmm. which would have been from like a more southern region of china Mm -hmm. probably would not have grown where mulan was living the surname fa is cantonese which is also from the more southern cantonese speaking regions Mm -hmm. the surname hua was given to mulan in a later version of the poem Hua would have been what it would have been in Mandarin versus fa which is cantonese so it was a more mandarin speaking northern region Mm. Mulan also is supposed to go to the Yellow River Mm -hmm. in the ballad, and the Yellow River is in the north. Right. Yeah, so just a a lot of details that get ignored. Mm -hmm. And again, just a lot of laziness, I think, or oversight. So I watched a really great YouTube video that we can link to in our bibliography. It's called Everything Culturally Right and Wrong with Mulan. And it's by Jiran J. Zhao. They actually really like this film. They said something to the effect of, this film is all about vibes. And (laughs) a lot of the vibes seem right. So that's great. Okay, But they do a really thorough review going scene by scene and just point out all these details that would be incorrect. So that's where I learned about the family guardian piece, the depiction of the altar, is completely Mm. inaccurate. That would be in the house and there would be a place to provide offerings. Small things like the placement of chopsticks within rice is incorrect. Mm -hmm. They would never be sticking straight up and down out of rice. That's actually very offensive. Another small detail that, again, is just like, of course, this YouTuber said that the letter that Mushu and Cricky write. Yes, The characters are just characters from a Chinese takeout menu. It's like General Tso's chicken Mm -hmm. is on the letter. So clearly the animators were like, 
huh, what, what's something that has Chinese writing on it? This will work? Yeah, it's really bad. It's just so lazy. It's so lazy. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned during your synopsis that the haircutting wouldn't occur. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because I thought it was really interesting. That's actually an extension of this value of filial piety. According to this principle, everything of the body is a gift from one's parents, including the hair. And so you wouldn't cut off the hair because that would disrespect it as a gift that your parents had provided. Mm. That is such a pivotal scene in this film where Mulan is cutting off her hair and that's her first step in dressing like a man. Mm -hmm. And yet that is totally unnecessary and inaccurate. I remember even thinking, I think when I was younger, about how when Chifu tears Mulan out of the medical tent after she's been hurt and pulls the top knot out and like throws her on the ground and goes, a woman. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) right. All you've done is take her hair from up to down. Right. And what you're saying is like, that's not a signifier of gender. Like, right. If a man is able to tie it up in a top knot, if he takes it down, it's going to go down. So like right. the length of hair should not be a sudden reveal. Like it was all up there before you could see it. <laughs> and I, cause I'm not going to come back to the scene. I have to say that Paul and I were watching it again the second time. And he was like, wait, is she wearing blush now (laughs) and so we replayed it several times and Mulan is like in no quote-unquote makeup like the lines for the eyes are pretty dark on everyone Mm -hmm. but then when she comes out after this the medical tent scene her like mascara is back on because you can see the little wing on the edge of her eyes Mm -hmm. and then she has blush in some of those scenes and it's like (laughs) does she put on makeup in the medical tent She's supposed to look exactly the same, but the art actually changes between when she's Mulan and when she's Ping. Yeah, I noticed that too and was just confused by it because it makes no logical sense. Like you're saying, it's just supposed to be this signifier to the audience that she's a woman now. Don't worry, now that she's a woman again, she will have all of the feminizing features Disney is so known for. You gotta have eyelashes. If you don't have eyelashes, you're not a woman in a Disney film. So true, so true. (laughs) Uh, So I have a quote that I wanted to share from that book by Dong that I mentioned. Quote, Despite the Disney Studios' efforts to highlight cultural legitimacy, many film images and designs fail to represent China and Chinese culture. Instead, they reflect the American concept of Chinatown, i.e. a globalized China, wherein acupuncturists, panda bears, the Great Wall, the Imperial City, Chinese calligraphy, and Chinese martial arts are used in the Disney version of Mulan as elements conveying an Americanized index of, quote, Chinese-ness, end quote. Yep. Yeah. Along that same lines, there's a a quote from Wang that really stuck with me as an understanding of this movie. Mm -hmm. Also, Wang is a professor at Hamilton College, where I went to school, so let's go. But in general, he kind of characterizes the themes of the film as, quote, perpetuation of Western supremacy under the facade of feminism. Yes. And we're going to come back to the facade of feminism, but this perpetuation of white supremacy, Mm -hmm. 
like is coming through in every aspect of how we have Americanized and Westernized Mm -hmm. this vision of China. And that goes with, I think, what you were saying of like Chinatown of like this cute little quaint version of your entire country is like so othered and exoticized and Mm -hmm. the way that the film looks down on Chinese culture Mm -hmm. is just to elevate Western culture, which comes through in literally every other theme we're going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk more about cultural values. I mentioned Mm -hmm. filial piety repeatedly. The YouTuber I mentioned, they make a joke about how they've never heard anyone talk as much about honor as the Fa family talks about honor because (laughs) the filmmakers have totally misconstrued this value of honor. It would really be more about saving face or maintaining face. And we do hear Mushu say at one point that he will not lose face. So that's a little bit more of an authentic Mm. version of that. But the idea of honor is a really westernized translation of that concept Mm -hmm. yeah and the way that this version of honor places restrictions on every single person in this society Mm -hmm. is that western supremacy boiling to the surface yes yes. and then the other big misstep here is the emphasis on individualism over collectivism Mm -hmm. which we've talked about a lot the book Mouse Morality by Ward, I've mentioned, I think, specifically in our Hunchback mm-hmm. of Notre Dame episode, but Ward has a great chapter about the mismatch of Western and, and Eastern values within this film. And the way that they portrayed Mulan is really highlighting that Western sense of individualism. The reason why Mulan is a hero in the ballad is because she's saving her father, And Mm -hmm. then the movie totally disrespects that because she has a line where she says, maybe I didn't do it to save my father. Yes. Maybe I wanted to prove that I could do something right. It's like, ooh, if you just took that away, that would make it so much more authentic. Like if her motivations were truly to save her father, that would make it more authentic to this Chinese value of collectivism and the value of filial piety that are so Mm -hmm. central to the original. And- in making Mulan so defiant against the ways that this society is telling her to be, right? they are, again, demonizing those important cultural values yeah. and misinterpreting them, showing them in a way that is not accurate, and then using a westernized, ver- westernized version of their legendary hero to fight back against their culture. So like they don't even present the original cultural values accurately. They make them restrictive and then use their own like westernized ideals to let women be free. And it isn't true to the original ballad. Yeah. It's a mess. Yeah. Uh, I want to return to Sansusi's version Mm -hmm. of this story, Fa Mulan Mm -hmm. here, just to like give a little more context in how these cultural values changed and where like the inspiration comes for a lot of the choices mm. in Disney's Mulan. Mm-hmm. So in the Sansusi version, Mulan's older sister tells her that women do not play fight. Also Mulan says at one point, elder sister says I act like a man. Again, all, everything I'm going to mention is like not part of the original ballad mm-hmm. and often not even part of many of the like 
newer versions that reinterpret it. In the book, Mulan calls her father old and weak, (laughs) which we see in the film. Mm -hmm. But again, in the ballad, there's no mention of the father's condition, Mm -hmm. not his age. Like, that doesn't come up. In the book, the parents agree to Mulan's plan to save the family, Mm. which is interesting. She has, like, permission. Mm -hmm. So, like, a little bit more of the, like, family unit in the book than in the film. Mm -hmm. In the book, Mulan wants to be the greatest swordswoman. So that individualism Mm -hmm. coming out. Mm -hmm. Also, the romance is a a bigger piece. So Sansusi has a line where he talks about the brave and handsome young men in the army. Mm -hmm. Mulan sometimes dreams of leaving the battlefield, but her duty to her family and her country and her sense of honor push her dreams aside. Hmm. I think that phrasing pushed her dreams aside is very American. And like, look how noble she's being rather than being like, yeah, you're you gotta fight. <laughs> this is this is what you're here for. We're not thinking about boys, right? Or also just having more of an alignment between her dreams and the values of the culture that she's a part of. True. Mm-hmm. It's very American for us to have a dream that is aligned with individualism. But if we are a person from a collective culture, our dreams and our aspirations are more likely to align with the values of that culture. It doesn't fit. It doesn't match. Yeah. Um, And then the last piece. So at the very end of the ballad, there's this metaphor about a male rabbit and a female rabbit that is very important to the original one. I kind of don't understand it. And I think that's because I am a white American woman who's never been exposed to it before. But the essential idea is that like on the battlefield, who can tell the difference between a man and a woman? They're both equally capable. Mm -hmm. In Sansusi's version... This is what replaces that. Quote, In the field, what is the needing of telling he-rabbit from she-rabbit? But when they return to their burrow, the rabbits know which partner is husband and which is wife. So they build a life together. What? Ew. I know. (laughs) Ew. (laughs) It's so, like, gender essentialist, first of all. But then also... This comes from a man who is courting Mulan at the end and is like, yeah, you know, you were a great general and we were equals on the fields, but now it's time for you to be a wife where I'll be the husband and you'll be the wife and everything will be as it should be in like a very in your face way Mm -hmm. that I think definitely plays into like Shang and Mulan at the end of the film. Right. And again, it's just a total misread of the original source material yeah so my main point here is just that like disney didn't come up with everything on their own there is additional source material that already made these changes they let that text guide them in what the story of mulan is Mm. versus any of the other research they had done they were like this exists we have the rights to it now this is what we're making into a movie Mm. so something that I saw come up in a couple different sources, both in a way that was uncritical and critical, was a discussion of how Disney tried to emphasize those values inherent in the Mulan story, which are universal, quote, universal. So neither Western nor Eastern, but the idea of... Bravery is a universal value. Mm. 
And I just find that problematic in and of itself. (laughs) There is an excellent article by Yin, and Yin writes, quote, the process of universalization is essentially a process of projecting the values of the dominant group as the unmarked standard against which alternatives are evaluated or judged. Yeah. It's another (laughs) example of what you brought up with the color discussion of Mm -hmm. this assumption that there is some universality, but we're projecting our own beliefs onto what is, quote, universal. What is the emotion-based interpretation of color or what values apply to all people everywhere. Mm -hmm. This, again, is just Disney trying to have its cake and eat it too. They're using this Chinese source material, but they're not actually embracing the cultural values inherent to the source material. And so I am ultimately left feeling so frustrated. And I want to ask Disney, can you please either embrace the cultural values inherent in the source material. And maybe they do that. We'll f- we'll find out when we get to discussions of Moana and Encanto and, and hmm. Coco, it, you know, several decades from now. But <laughs> I want them to either embrace those cultural values and not criticize them or project their own onto it or find mm-hmm. different source material. Yeah, it comes back to the source material every time. I feel like you said that in Hunchback. Yeah. Well, maybe the problem's the source material. Right. Right. Well, it is. It's. It is. And Susie's is bad source material. To be clear, it's not the source material itself. Sometimes it's the source material itself that is problematic. (laughs) But that's not my primary criticism here. My primary criticism is the choice and interpretation and adaptation of the source material. Yes. Absolutely. That Disney arrogance of saying like, you know what? We want to tell a Chinese story and we are the right people to tell it. Mm -hmm. That's where the problem is originating in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. The only other piece of inaccuracy that I wanted to highlight was the matchmaking piece at the beginning. My sense from the research is that is entirely inaccurate. There would be no audition of sorts for a matchmaker but rather a matchmaker will be brought into the family and Mm. the family as a unit Mulan with her parents and other important family members would have a discussion with the matchmaker who would then broker a marriage with another family Mm -hmm. also just the process of getting ready for the matchmaker a lot of inaccuracies in how that is portrayed so Really, the whole setup of that opening sequence, which is really foundational to our understanding of Mulan as a character, is inaccurate. Yeah. A way that it is more westernized is, I think, the presentation that it's like a test. And it's not like how it should be where I think the matchmaker is working with the family and like has to, you know, probably navigate some girls who are not as idealized as wives Mm -hmm. as the culture might expect or want them to be but it's in the movie it feels like only like one of them is gonna like make it through or something and they have to impress this matchmaker versus like it being that community process of finding a good match for you hopefully based on who you are Mm -hmm. 
yeah, so it's just, it's the, the competition of it also feels very Western. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I have one other inaccuracy right. that I think is also important to mention, mm-hmm. which is that the threat of Mulan mm. being killed mm-hmm. by the army if she is revealed to be a woman seems to be a Western addition yep. and would not have actually happened. Right. And that is said so many times, reinforced so many times to communicate to the audience what the stakes are in this movie. Mm-hmm. But those aren't the actual stakes. <laughs> yes. Like it wouldn't, like it is the whole thing the plot revolves around. It wouldn't have actually happened. And then they would have no story right. based on the way that they want to tell mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But there's a really good quote from Wang on the interpretation of this quote all of this ungrateful cruel and barbaric treatment of mulan is but for one reason a quote chinese law that views women's participation in the army as high treason and ultimate dishonor the mulan of the original chinese ballad of mulan however must not have heard about this law (laughs) otherwise she would not happily reveal her gender to comrades in arms when returning home from the army right Obviously, having no idea about this law either, those comrades in arms do nothing other than feel surprised. (laughs) Right. It's not a threat. And also, like, plot holes wise, I have to point out that during I'll Make a Man Out of You when Mulan is not doing well, Shang is just like, go home, you're through. Like, he is letting Mulan leave right so if her father had gone to training and not done a great job seemingly he also could have just gone home right right because he's injured or maybe he would be given like a the equivalent of a desk job like it doesn't function if you start poking holes at the stuff yeah i mean welcome to most disney movies ever (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so another thing Thing related, I guess, to depictions of Asian people is the way that the Huns are depicted. They have yellow eyes. Shan Yu has fangs and claws for fingernails. Sharpened fingernails. Right. They're really depicted as inhuman, even though Mm -hmm. they're just another group of Asian people. So mm-hmm. that feels a little confusing and or racist, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely colorist. Right. Where like the bad guys are slightly darker, like, like overall, beiger. definitely. Yeah, like they're just unhealthy <laughs> looking. <laughs> but yeah, but definitely like when you put them side by side, there's a lot more color and warmth and light in the Chinese characters. And then the Huns have this gray dark skin Mm -hmm. and the the yellow eyes in all of them that's just like what why yeah so it's just it seems like a very colorist view Mm -hmm. and Shan Yu has the Fu Manchu mustache which Mm. if you listen to our great mouse detective episode is a racist stereotype also they're like furs are like dark and ragged and unrealistically thin and Mm -hmm. from the research that i did like yes they may have worn furs but like they were warm and like poofy and good for battle and made thick thick pelts that would protect them and not like these like flapping ripped shreds of cloth right yeah absolutely all right 
We ready to get into a discussion of gender? No kidoki artichoke. <laughs> gender is obviously very central to the plot, and it's also been the focus of much of the critical scholarship of the film. So there is a lot to unpack here and a lot of different angles to look at this idea of gender through, I think. So the first thing that I want to throw out is that the film shows the ways in which gender can be considered a performance. This is Mm. very in line with the work of queer theorists, most notably that of Judith Butler, who wrote the foundational text, Gender Trouble. Mulan is very much performing as a man. Gender is expressed through dress, through voice and and speech patterns, through behavior. Mm -hmm. And because gender is a performance, it must not be essential or linked to biology in any essentialist way. That would be the argument of queer theorists. Is that idea something that you are familiar with, Erin, that idea of gender as performance? Not like capital G, capital P, okay. but yes, it's like gender isn't real and is a construct and all the different ways we construct ourselves and society constructs things definitely means it, it has to be a performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, totally. Should we talk about feminism then? I think it's a good place to start, also particularly with like maybe the bits that Disney gets semi-right or like the parts that feel like they actually could be feminist Mm -hmm. and then we can just knock them down (laughs) so we go (laughs) further along. Right. Well, to some extent, the idea that gender is not an essential trait is in line with feminist values and feminist philosophy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, Mulan takes up male-gendered things by joining the army, but she's still a woman. At the end of the day, she still identifies as female and, like, at the end comes home and she's with a man. And gender as a performance is certainly undercut Mm. by the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think Disney is doing its classic 90s move of bringing the girl power. Yes, It's showing us Mulan as this protagonist who isn't like the other girls. She's smart. She's strong. She's a tomboy and a strategic problem solver. And in a way, it's also depicting Chinese culture as so oppressive because it's not allowing Mulan to embrace any of those aspects of her identity within this feminine gender role. Yes, we found the facade of feminism, everyone. (laughs) I think that Mulan is still really cool and could be like feminist icon if you remove all of the other stuff and like the context that she's in and the messages of the film and the way that the film has completely changed Mulan's origins and cultural values and beliefs. But like she is smart. She is strong. She does choose to go to fight for both her father and because she wanted to prove that she could do something right. Like those are things that I, as a Western white woman do value. Mm hmm. 
but it is in the context of the film. The feminism is used to, again, bring that Western supremacy viewpoint to Chinese culture and just to take Chinese culture down a peg and say how horrible and oppressive it is to women. Right. And this girl power feminism in the film, I think also then ignores the fact that there's feminism in the source material, but it's not Western feminism. It's a different type Mm -hmm. of feminism. And so it gets completely superseded by Disney's 1990s girl power approach. Several scholars have emphasized that there's a lot of feminism in the ballad, but it's this idea of collective feminism where empowerment for women is achieved through fulfilling their social role in a way that supports their family or their community. Mm -hmm. So there is a version of feminism already there that Disney has decided to totally dismiss. And I think the point you're making is one that Yin also makes. And they say that by portraying China as a society that oppresses women, quote, Disney serves to reinforce the assumption that gender oppression is a non-Western issue. Mm -hmm. And by blaming the cultural other, Disney manages to avoid attending to those problems in U.S. society. Yes. End quote. Yes. Same article. It shelters the gender hierarchy through dissolving it into racial and cultural hierarchy. Yes. And that's exactly it. Like, you don't look at yourself because we're going to focus on China. Right. So Disney is, like, trying to do this Western feminism thing Uh that is ultimately kind of racist, but could be successful, like you're saying, outside of the context of the film. But then I think... They undercut their own point, both with the ending, like you said, and with the song A Girl Worth Fighting For. What is that song doing in this movie? I do not get it. The moment this song comes in is really interesting. So Yao Ling and Qian Po sing about the, what the woman that they imagine they're fighting for and coming home to. And it has all of these very specific gender roles about her you know, catering to their every need and cooking for them and all of that kind of stuff. Being paler than the moon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And of course, Chen Po is the one who talks about the cooking. Right. And then Mulan at one point is like, how about a girl who's got a brain and always speaks her mind? And they go, nah. Right. The story is being very self-aware and knowing that Mulan is a different kind of woman than all the women that they're talking about. And it is pushing their ideas down. I think the film is making fun of these men, even if it seems like the society they've placed the film in would uphold these values. So again, doing that demonization of the like what they imagine is Chinese culture. I just don't think they're doing it forcefully enough, though. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Mulan has this one line that's immediately dismissed. And otherwise, we have to listen to multiple verses and a chorus about all of these gender norms. That doesn't feel productive to me. Mm, Yeah, like more dramatic irony, more Mulan reacting to this stuff, like with disbelief would help to get the message across to the little kids watching it. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. right. 
the one thing that this is not strong enough and like only came up in my brain to like on this most recent watching, but I think is kind of cool is we talked about that transition from a girl with fighting for to the burned out village right afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that transition is doing a lot of work where Mm. we have this super jovial song that's ridiculous talking about these very specific kinds of women that these men are fighting for. Mm -hmm. And then we get the burned out village and Mulan finds that doll as well. And Mm -hmm. I do feel like the film is kind of making the argument of like, what about these women? What about these children and these little girls? Mm. Are they worth fighting for? And Hmm. I want it to imply a like change of heart that doesn't come up in any other way afterwards. So there's no way to say hmm. that that actually happened for Ling and Yao and Chenpo. But I think that that's very powerful emotionally in that moment to be like, there were women and children living here. They might not fit the ideals that you were just singing about, but they are worth fighting for. That makes sense to me. And yeah, I think... You're absolutely right about the emotional resonance of that moment Mm. in the film. It's deeply impactful and does interrupt that song in a very intentional way. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to try to give it some structure, I was going through the various gender roles that are like exhibited by the women and then like Mm -hmm. how a lot of these are rooted in misogyny. Mm -hmm. there seem to be different kind of women that are shown throughout the film or held up against Mulan as like how she should be. Mm -hmm. There's the wife or mother, which is basically all of the lyrics of honor to us all. Mm -hmm. In this song, there's the line where they say, how could any fellow say no sale? Depicting Chinese society as if a woman is sold to a man. And like that's Mm -hmm. offensive to that process and how those matches are made. Right. It definitely does seem to imply that it women as chattel. Yes. Also on the wife mother aspect, can we talk about Grandma Fa? Yeah. So she's a comedic relief character mostly, Mm -hmm. but in the context of gender, I mean, she's part of this whole process of getting Mulan ready to go to the matchmaker in the beginning, though she is not nearly as intense about it as Mulan's mother is. Mm -hmm. But then at the end, she has three lines back to back after Mulan returns home where she says, first, if you ask me, she should have brought home a man instead of a Mm -hmm. sword sign me up for the next war when Shang walks in and then Mm -hmm. to Shang when Mulan invites him to dinner, would you like to stay forever? Mm -hmm. So this one after the other undercutting that like one, their relationship is anything more than like immediate marriage. Like they're, they can't be friends Mm -hmm. and her placing that expectation on Mulan that supposedly in the Disney version, she's been fighting to get semi away from of like, now you're just a wife and mother again, and this is all that mattered, and none of the other things you did matter because, yay, you brought home a man. Right. And it does feel a little incongruous with other aspects of her character. She kind of encourages Mulan to go look over the roof of the mm-hmm. of the wall to watch the conscription conversation. <laughs> so she is sort of encouraging Mulan to 
engage in these behaviors that don't totally seem to align with what's expected of her. But then she is really laying it on pretty thick in terms of reinforcing some of those traditional expectations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that's kind of interesting in a girl power way is that the film, like we've talked about, differs from the original ballad in that Mulan is, quote, exposed as a woman earlier while she's still at battle. Mm-hmm. And the narrative result of that is that she fights the final battle sequence against Sean Yu, defeating him as a woman Mm -hmm. rather than in the male form of Ping. And that feels very intentional of, you know, Disney wanted to allow Mulan to fight as a woman in this climactic battle sequence, Mm -hmm. which I, I do think does service to this 90s girl power feminism that Disney's trying to promote. But again, is like this very stark departure from the source material. Yeah, and I think it's so hard to be okay with the feminism consistently in the film because of the way that Disney completely ignores any notion of gender being constructed. So, like, Mm. we can't have that talk first and then return to, like, okay, but, like, this woman is a cis woman and she's excited to fight uh, with men and be powerful as a cis woman. And, like, that's fine if we've first acknowledged that, like, there are other kinds of women and other genders Mm. but like you can't revel in it (laughs) when you say disney ignores the fact that gender is socially constructed can you say more about that it seems gender essentialist in that like you are a man or a woman non-binary people and transness doesn't exist in this film the way that the film wants you to understand it because you can cross-dress yeah that's like a term that I think one of the ancestors uses, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not because you have a gender identity that's different from your biological sex assigned at birth. It's because you're just cross-dressing temporarily. Yeah. Mulan is definitely a woman all the time. Let's not like think that she has any sort of gender questioning going on here. Right. So also towards the end of the film, we get this other reflection on Mulan being a girl again, returning to that form, let's say. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And when Mulan is coming into the Imperial City and trying to warn people, no one will listen to her. And even Mushu ignores her for a second. And then when she's Mm -hmm. like, Mushu, Mushu says to her, you're a girl again, remember? And like doesn't elaborate on that at all and we're meant to read that as like well you're a girl again so of course no one is listening to you Mm -hmm. and that ties back into again the way that disney is portraying the chinese culture and the way that it treats women as oppressive and our western society would totally have listened to her if she was telling us the huns were attacking right totally so even though she's a war hero Nothing Mm -hmm. changes once she's back as a woman. You can do everything you need to to, like, prove yourself. But because you're a woman, you no longer matter. Even Chifu, a couple minutes later, says she's a woman. She'll never be worth anything. Mm -hmm. Which is horrible. (laughs) It is horrible. 
I think that's a really interesting example because one of the feminist criticisms of this film and of other Disney films of a similar ilk is that the feminism is very individualistic in that not only is it rooted in this Western value of individualism, but the feminist goals of the hero are for her own individual liberation. Mm. And there's no goal around changing the way that Chinese culture views women. Mm. Like that is never part of Mulan's motivation. So that is actually pretty antithetical to second wave feminism within a Western context, which has a very famous core tenet of the personal is political. So the individual experience of one woman is actually inherently political because it is representative of this overarching misogynistic oppression that's taking place. My liberation as a as an individual is bound up in your liberation. So there needs to be a collectivist effort behind it. So even if we are giving Disney kudos for some version of 90s feminism, it's falling short in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about male gender roles? Yeah. The way that male gender roles are portrayed are really wrapped up into toxic masculinity. Mm. Obviously in like, I'll make a man out of you. You must be strong and swift and mysterious. That's a, a piece of being a man, <laughs> apparently. And mysterious as the dark side of the as moon. To, yeah, yes. sure. Absolutely. And these lines are also like misogynistic at the same time. We get the, did they send me daughters when I asked for sons? The daughters mm-hmm. are incompetent. You're spineless, pale, pathetic lot. That's all reflecting mm-hmm. on women. And these are things that men shouldn't be and can't be. Mm-hmm. And we also get that with the bathing scene mm. where Yao becomes king of the rock and says, there's nothing you girls can do about it, which right. uses femininity to make fun of the men and embarrass them into violence. Which is manly. (laughs) Yeah, it's not great. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the girly scream that Yao lets out later after Mushu bites Ling and they think it's a snake. And there's the Mm -hmm. some king of the rock line. It just shows how toxic it is when Mm -hmm. people can use embarrassment about femininity or a supposed lack of masculinity That's just internalized toxic masculinity about what a man is supposed to be, which isn't a thing. It's all constructed. (laughs) Right. And this is where second and third wave Western feminism misses the point entirely in that the goal is not to bring women onto equal footing with men, because as we see, men aren't doing so awesome either. (laughs) The problem is actually the gender binary in and of itself, because that gender binary is what's putting unrealistic expectations on everyone of all genders. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And And Disney's not super concerned with that or aware of that perspective. Yeah. And like relying on 
these supposed differences between genders as like a source of humor. Like all of this Mm -hmm. is supposed to be funny. Um, And the audience is like in on the joke because we understand how gender is structured in Western society in America. There's another moment where Mushu, when he wakes up Mulan for like her first day of training and he's in the pink and white apron and like feeding Mulan and checking on her and kind of mothering, that's meant to be funny in a similar way because of how he is blending the lines and like, Mushu's a guy, but he's dressed like a woman. Ha ha ha. (laughs) The audience is supposed to laugh at that. But Mushu isn't, which... I kind of like, like he's embracing Mm. that role and like, Mm. it isn't funny to any of the characters in the moment. So I think, you know, with enough growth on the audience side, it could actually be just like a cute moment rather than being Mm -hmm. meant to be funny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think another version of that is the way that the cross-dressing of Ling Yao and Qian Po is depicted at the end. It's entirely Mm. as comedic relief. It's, I think, another example of how we're saying, like, oh, men being women, hilarious. (laughs) So funny, inherently. Inherently funny and and not something that any man would actually want to do. Right, which is why Shang doesn't. So, like, Shang is the only one who doesn't change his outfit but does do the scarf thing to like climb up so he's like yeah you're right woman you were smart and had like a good idea yay feminism but shang doesn't dress up because shang is the big strong male lead who he's a manly man manly man who's also the romantic interest as little as that that plot line is in the film especially at that point right the other characters aren't being romanced so they can cross-dress and be silly and we can make fun of them, but we can't do it to Shang because then he will lose all of his attractiveness to Mulan. And that's completely false. (laughs) Let's talk about Li Shang, shall we? Okay. As we're saying, he's this handsome hero. Mm -hmm. He's portrayed as hyper-masculine and is actually resented somewhat for that. Yao kind of makes fun of Shang Ooh, tough guy <laughs> and says like I'll get that arrow and I'll do it with my shirt on uh, yeah <laughs> and there is actually a good point in Davis who wrote handsome heroes and vile villains and Davis noted that Shang is not jealous or angry or defensive particularly He decides to spare Mulan. He doesn't feed into Chifu's characterization of Mulan. Mm. Shang is happy to bow to Mulan at the end when the emperor does. So in that way, Shang is less problematic than a lot of other male, quote, heroes or romantic interests that we've encountered, I think. Yeah. Overall, he seems kind of one note in a way that maybe is beneficial in this movie. Mm -hmm. But like, in the end is kind. And he has that kind of clumsy moment with Mulan at the end, which shows some, some more personality than we've gotten from him. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who view 
Shang as a bisexual icon. Yes. Because maybe he is a little attracted to Ping as a man, Mm -hmm. in addition to being attracted to Mulan as a woman. I like this idea, and I think the best argument I saw for it was the fact that it felt like they had such a relationship that pre-existed Shang coming over to return the helmet and being a little bumbling in a way that shows you like he might have feelings for Mulan. Like they had Mm -hmm. already gone through so much that maybe because of that, he had already developed feelings for Ping. Mm. But I don't think textually we get any true evidence for that. Yeah, We don't get evidence for a lot of things in Disney that we want to read into because they represent more people <laughs> and make us happier. So that's fine. Right. But um, <laughs> I don't think Shang in text is bi. <laughs> right. And the implication that Mulan and Shang end up together does reinforce this standard of heteronormativity mm-hmm. in a way that is classic Disney and ultimately... A little bit problematic. Yeah. Because, yeah, it does quash any possibility of Shang embracing bisexuality. But, yeah, and Shang can't fall in love with Mulan until Mulan is definitely a woman again. Definitely. So the flip side of a heteronormativity piece is homophobia. Mm -hmm. So the place where I saw this most prominently is in the depiction of Chi Fu's character, Mm -hmm. who's depicted as very effeminate he squeals quote like a girl when he sees the panda and in a girl worth fighting for he's singing about the girl and i think it's yao makes a comment like it would only be his mother because you know of course women aren't attracted to him mm-hmm. all of this is centered on this character who's a little bit of a, a villain mm-hmm. not a villain in the same way the huns are but characterized as antagonistic and threatening to our protagonist Mulan yeah effeminate villains we have one again in classic Disney fashion classic yeah there's also that moment where Chifu when he's going to bathe has the towel on his head and covering his chest Mm. which is just like that is where a woman typically puts those things because she has boobs and he does not have boobs and yet he still wears it around his chest instead of around his waist so right another example of the way that He's being emasculated. There's this heteronormativity. There's this homophobia. And yet we have the song Reflection Mm. at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot about Mulan that is trans. Like the chest binding is something that Mm. a lot of people who are assigned female at birth might do to reduce the appearance of their breasts. So could this be, I know it's not, but like, could it be a trans allegory of some kind? Yeah. I think that if someone wants to read it that way and it makes them feel seen, then like go for it in a very similar way of seeing Shang as bi. Mm -hmm. The text certainly doesn't support it. And Mulan happily returning back to be a wife and mother and woman at the end Mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be part of it. Um, Right. But yeah, I think transness does seem like a part of this discussion, especially more recently that Disney would not have anticipated in its original 
creation. The lyrics to Reflection, I found so, so striking. Specifically, why is my reflection someone I don't know? Must I pretend that I'm someone else for all time? When will my reflection show who I am inside? Which just seems such a beautiful articulation of the experience that a lot of trans folks have of feeling like their external appearance or their body doesn't align with the gender identity that they have internally. Yeah, the focus on appearance in that song in particular, I think, is what makes it kind of hard to understand in the context of the film. Like, when Mm. I went through the lyrics, I was like, I kind of, I'm not entirely sure what Mulan means here. Like, Mm. what is it about her that isn't the girl that other people see? Like, she is clumsy. She, this is what she looks like. Like she has a, a sense of style, some of like what she wears or like she pulls the the hair out of her hairdo right before she goes to see the matchmaker. Like mm-hmm. she is able to make her appearance feel more like herself. So it obviously is metaphorical about like this woman, this wife or this perfectly poised person is just like not who I am. Mm-hmm. But that feels like more of a reach than... I might actually be trans. <laughs> like that right. reading feels more accurate to these lyrics. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It really does, which is so, so interesting. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I think you're right. That's not really borne out in the rest of the film. But yeah, I think that's important to think about. And actually, I kind of enjoyed watching it as like a trans allegory and thinking about the risk isn't so much that Mulan would be found out to be a woman because being a woman is bad, but the risk that comes with a trans person being outed. Yeah. Because the risk there is very real, of course. So yeah, I feel like there is something there that could feel resonant. Mm -hmm. Speaking as a cisgender person, so huge, huge asterisk to that. Mm -hmm. But that was my take on that piece. I like that. I think that's really interesting. Could make for a really cool version of this story, but also I'm sure it is fraught in so many other ways because <laughs> I don't know how queerness would interact with any of all of the pre-existing things we've talked about with both westernized and Chinese cultures. <laughs> well, actually, I'm glad you asked because there is a great article by Jess Kung called Disney's Mulan and Unlocking Queer Asian American Masculinity. Mm. We will link to it in the bibliography. Cool. So it's a really wonderful analysis from a Chinese trans person on how this film feels for them. Not so much focusing on it as a trans allegory necessarily, but talking more generally about how the film portrays masculinity and how queerness factors in. Awesome. Okay, so the last theme that we wanted to touch on briefly is the depiction of fatness. It's primarily as a source of comedy Mm -hmm. here. There are two fat characters in particular, the matchmaker, who is portrayed in a way that feels very typical of like this type of character. She's fat. She's sort of shrew-ish. And there's some sort of comedic irony in that she is the one who is 
pairing people for romance, but she herself would not be romantically desirable. Mm. And I think her fatness is definitely part of that. And then a character who's in the film much more is Chien Po, who's a very lovable character. He's very sweet and gentle, but his fatness is the source of physical comedy multiple times. He causes a tidal wave by jumping into the water in the swimming hole. Mm -hmm. He knocks over an entire line of soldiers with his stomach. And in A Girl Worth Fighting For, he's focused on the cooking that his wife would do for him. Yeah. And i just so tired. <laughs> just so tired of fat people being the butt of every single joke. Yes. Yeah. That is his purpose mostly is to be part of a group joke or to create comedy on his own through his fatness. Yeah. There is one other moment referencing fatness that I think is worth bringing up. After the quartet has climbed into the palace they're preparing to do whatever their plan is and mulan is like any questions and you hear oh, yao yeah. say does this dress make me look fat it's just such low-hanging fruit to have that question there this is another one of those lines where like i can talk about it being misogynistic or transphobic or the toxic masculinity that's wrapped up in it yep it's again it's just a line for laughs there's no thought into the how other people would feel about it both within the film and watching it like it's does this dress make me look fat is just has been like I feel like extradited from our society as a line used in <laughs> pop culture because it was so overused for such a long time yeah it doesn't do anyone any justice and it's just like ugh. when I heard it come I just on. was like oh, come on yow I know agreed <sighs> all right how about some Aaron's extras? Okay. What could possibly be left? We've talked about so much. Nothing. Just kidding. There's several. <laughs> Two things that I think I think matter, and I don't know if you guys care, but guess what you're going to hear about him anyway? Frank Welker, who has done lots of cool animal noises and whatnot in the past. He's the voice of Con the Horse and Creaky. Just fun to put another credit in there. Great. Also, while researching this, I learned that the 3D clay sculptures that they use for characters as references are called maquettes. So now I actually have a term for that. That is like specifically this use of like reference for animation. So, hooray. Wow. Maquettes. Maquettes. Great. Probably no one would ever notice this, but Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook, the directors, appear in the film as the fireworks attendants. Oh. Tony is okay. the one on the left who is the bigger guy, and Barry is on the right, and he's the thinner guy. They're doing their own little Ron and John cameo. <laughs> yep. I think they only get this one. <laughs> Oopsies. Shenpo, Yao, and Ling are kind of modeled after Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. Sure. <laughs> the team yeah. wanted the three of them to face situations as like a balanced trio, but all having their distinctive personality. So Ling, most obviously, is goofy. He's the physical comedy guy. Hmm, okay. Yao is hot-headed, so he's Donald. Right, and Chien Po is Mickey? Sure! <laughs> yeah! That one's the okay. reach of like kind, gentle, hmm. smart... So, yeah, the three are, are our classic trio embodied. June Foray, who was the voice of 
Grandma Fa, the speaking voice, was also Rocky in Rocky and Bullwinkle. I think is awesome. Great. But Grandma Fa's singing voice is Marnie Nixon. And Nixon is one of the most famous ghost singers of the mid to late 20th century. Oh. She sang Shall We Dance for Deborah Kerr in The King and I, I Feel Pretty for Natalie Wood in West Side Story. And I could have danced all night for Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. Whoa. Okay. She feels important. <laughs> Iconic voice. Marnie Nixon. Got to stick that in the in the head for trivia. <laughs> yeah. Donny Osmond had previously auditioned to be the speaking voice of Hercules in Hercules. Oh. But they thought that he sounded too old to play the character. So mm. he was happy to be brought back in Mulan. Mm-hmm. We mentioned earlier that Christina Aguilera sings the credits version of Reflection. Mm-hmm. And the single for that song was her first song released in the U.S. Yeah, wow. All right, last but not least is my favorite bit of random trivia <laughs> for Mulan. If you know anything about random trivia for Mulan, it might include the Rick and Morty Szechuan sauce incident. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So, when Mulan premiered, the McDonald's Happy Meal toy promotion for the movie also included Szechuan sauce for Chicken McNuggets. Okay. It left the menu after that promotion ended. And then in a 2017 episode of Rick and Morty, Rick uses a device to visit his memories. And while he's in a memory from 1998, he goes to McDonald's to get the Mulan Szechuan sauce because he misses it. <laughs> Whoa, so specific. So specific. So Rick and Morty fans apparently grasped onto this moment and begged McDonald's online to bring the sauce back. So McDonald's did for one day in 2017 and only at select locations. Wow. And then fans went to McDonald's all over the U.S. demanding the Rick and Morty Szechuan sauce. Like, mobs of people waiting in line for hours at mcdonald's so like do people know that asian markets exist that's not the mcdonald's one that rick referenced in the episode rachel this is online culture we're talking about okay 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 great got it (laughs) but yes fair they could get a way better one probably um (laughs) like a way better (laughs) so then There were locations that like ran out or locations where they never had it in the first place and employees didn't know what people were talking about and the fans literally rioted. (laughs) So they were like throwing food and chairs. They harassed employees. They were the perfect example of toxic fandom, quite honestly. It seems like things got quite out of hand. They did. The cops were called in several locations. The riots got news coverage. It was ridiculous. And then McDonald's did eventually release a larger amount of Szechuan sauce in 2018. (laughs) So that was absurd when I figured out about that and went down the rabbit hole of Rick and Morty (laughs) Szechuan sauce. (laughs) But those are my Everin's extras. Woo. Very good. Very good. Okay, what grade would you give Mulan for 1998 audiences? Gosh, I feel like this one's a tricky one. Critics were kind of mixed, although 
overall a little bit more negative, but it clearly had a better box office performance than some of the more recent films, so fans liked it. Then there's China, who hated it, and I don't know how much to factor in China. I think I'm going to give it a B-. minus. Okay. Sure. B-. minus. What do you think for... 2023 because it'll be 2023 when this episode comes out wow that's wild (laughs) i just pulled up our spreadsheet with film grades Mm -hmm. to see what i gave aladdin because this feels (laughs) like it's not as bad as aladdin i gave aladdin a c plus which in retrospect feels generous (laughs) because i was thinking a c plus for this so i guess maybe i'll do C++. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'll do it right. Like a 79.99999. Okay, okay, okay. Which is still a C+. C++ slash B (laughs) minus. Yeah. Do you have a recommendation? I do. I would like to recommend the Feeling Asian podcast by Young Me Mayer and Brian Park. This is a podcast about the Asian American experience, and it's actually a great time to listen because they just aired their final episode in November of 2022, but there's a back catalog of over 100 episodes you can listen to, and they interview a wide range of Asian American people. For their second to last episode, they interviewed Kathy Park Hong, who is the author of the nonfiction book Minor Feelings, An Asian American Reckoning. So that is my sub recommendation (laughs) because that book is excellent. So you can read the book and then listen to the Feeling Asian podcast. Cool. Yay. Thanks. Yay. You're welcome. We did it. We did. Now we just say the words at the end. <laughs> Do, would you like to tell folks what they should tune in for next time? A Bug's Life. A Bug's Life. Pixar. Pixar number two. In the meantime, we love it when you email us at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com. Aaron and I are white. <laughs> There's definitely things we missed talking about a film set in China. So if you noted anything, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Decon Disney. I will probably scrounge up some concept art that hopefully will drop on our social media platforms. So come give that a look. And you can also please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. of jade for beauty (laughs) even you can't blow it rude grandma